Amen to that. Well, it is a blessing and a joy that I get to introduce you to our guest speaker this morning. His name is Dave Harvey. And first and foremost, Dave is a man who has been transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore gets to humbly offer his service to the King of Kings in ministry. And Dave recently became the president of the Great Commission Collective. That is our church planting network that we are a part of. We are a church plant. We just celebrated our 10th birthday as a church plant. And we love, church, we love church planting. We have helped churches to launch and to be strengthened all around the world. So we love church planting. And it's great for Dave to be here uh, as the president of this organization. Church planting is a biblical model for fulfilling the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's why we're really excited about it. And Dave has a passion and he has uh, a dedication to help strengthen churches, to strengthen leaders, and to strengthen marriages. Dave has pastored for 33 years. He founded amicalled.com, a ministry, uh, ministry to ministers, and he's the author of several books, When Sinners Say I Do, Am I Called? Rescuing Ambition. He's the co-author of Letting Go, Rugged Love for Wayward Souls. He has a book coming out next year, I Still Do, Growing Closer and Stronger Through Life's Defining Moments. Dave is here with his wife, Kim, this morning, and they have four kids and four grandchildren. They live in southwest Florida, and they came up here to be with us in Chicago. So I think that merits a very warm welcome. Let's invite Dave up here this morning. It's, uh, it's really a great honor for me to, to join you this morning. I've been looking forward to this ever since Brian extended the invitation for Kim and I to come up. And, uh, you know, even as I stand here, I realize I, I've got so many things kind of coming into my mind that I, I, I want to say apart from what I've been asked to say, um, which is always a dangerous thing when you're a preacher. Uh, so... As, as Ryan indicated, I recently assumed the role of, of leading the Great Commission Collective, and um, what, what Ryan didn't say is that I'm not sure that this network, which we have come to treasure, would even be in existence if not for a board of which Ryan is one of the board members, and the clarity and the conviction and the courage that they brought in helping to establish and keep this network. And so one of the things that was so exciting about me coming for Kim and I was that I would have an opportunity to reach beyond Ryan to the, the elders, to the church, and have the opportunity to look you in the eye and say thank you. Thank you for the way that you have a vision as a church to be involved in church planting. Thank you for the way that you have a vision in, as a church to even release your senior pastor to be able to serve on a board like GCC. Thank you for the difference that it's making. And so if I accomplish nothing more this morning, I wanted to say thank you. So thanks. Acts, yes, amen, that's very appropriate. Acts chapter 20 is 
what I've been invited to speak on this morning, and so I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. Uh, as you're turning, let me just start with a little bit of context. So the date for what's happening is somewhere around AD 57. The ship that's carrying the Apostle Paul has docked in Miletus, which is a town about 30 miles southwest of Ephesus. And from there, what Paul does is he calls the Ephesian elders, these guys that were his mates, these friends that he had, to come and join him. And he, he does this for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it's because Paul is an intensely relational man. For Paul, it was never simply about executing a job description. He was built into the gospel and, as a result, built into a community. But there's a second reason as well, a very sobering reason, and that is that Paul thinks he is going to die. And so we will discover together that his tone appears grave, his subject most serious, because his eyes are fixed upon Jerusalem. Let's jump in at verse 17, chapter 20. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, as we turn our attention to this passage in Acts chapter 20, we ask that you would turn your attention to us and that you would meet us through the proclamation of your word, and that you would do a work of, of transformation, that, that there would be something within your word today that each and every one of us would carry away where we would be able to say, God met me, God spoke to me. And Lord, we pray this, recognizing that you're not reluctant, that you'd love to answer these kinds of prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. I used to find hiking 
to be an excellent time and an excellent way to explore life's deeper questions with my kids. And, and such was the case a while back when I, had to, I was on a hike with my son on a trail in the Pennsylvania countryside that just went up into a beautiful, picturesque overlook about five miles up. And an outcropping of rock, we're sitting there, and we're just looking over the countryside. And along come a group of college students, and we kind of strike up a conversation with them and begin asking them, so what are you doing? You know, what's, what's going on? And they said, well, we're actually up here to explore a cave. And if you'd like to come with us, we'd love to have you along. And so I found myself about 10 minutes later following this group of people that I had never met to a place I had never been to to do something I had never done before. And uh, we're climbing into this cave and going into the interior of it. And finally, we come to an area where there's light shining down in the middle of the cave. And it kind of opens up into a chamber. And you step into this chamber. And at the top, there's a hole in the top of the cave wall. And almost like as if it's the reason they arrived, each and every one of them begin climbing up the side of the cave wall and out through the hole in the roof. And so one does it, another, the third, and then the fourth. And while they're doing it, I could, I could just feel my son getting more agitated. So as the fourth one clears the hole, he immediately turns to me and says, Dad, oh, can I go up the side of the cave wall? Please let me go up the side of the cave wall. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain to him, the son, you know, this is not really where we, why we came. And, you know, if I arrive home without you, Mom's going to be very upset about that. <laughs> And, uh, and so, you know, let's dispense with that. But then I thought, you know, this is why we're here. We're trying to build a memory together. Go ahead up on the side of the cave wall. So he scampers right up there. So I, I should have predicted what was going to happen next because it was almost like they had arranged it. It was almost like they had choreographed it because all of a sudden five heads pop through the hole and they're saying, come on up. You're talking to me. They're saying, come on. They're doing this with their arm. Come on up the side of the cave wall. And I'm immediately saying, no, you don't, you don't get it. There, there, there's something about like having your third child where you just don't want to go up the side of a cave wall. There's something about having a mortgage and a bad back that make you not want to go up the side of a cave wall. So I kind of say, yeah, no, you know what? I'll just, I'll just you know, walk back out of the cave and meet you up there, which I did. And I picked up my son and we're you know, we're walking down the trail. The air is thick with disappointment. <laughs> and I realized I had really missed the, the opportunity. And so I, said, I just stopped, and he, like, bumped into the back of me. I said, son, we're going back. I'm going up the side of the cave wall. And he says, yes, as if to say, my dad's not a wimp. <laughs> and so, you know, 20 minutes later, we're back in the cave. I'm in the chamber, and I start climbing up the side of the cave wall, and there's a side where there's a place where you have to push off one wall, you have a foot on a ledge, to, to hit the other wall with your hand and put your foot on the other ledge, and I push off, and my hand hits the other wall, but my foot misses the ledge, and I begin sliding down the side of the cave wall. And my, my mind immediately says, okay, complete lock, lock everything down, and so I lock down and I'm spread out between these two walls, and I think, well, here I am. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm stuck. There's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward, but going forward comes at great risk. I can't say, oh, hang it, I'm just going to fall. 
I, and, and I can't just, I mean, the money, the, the mind does really funny things at a moment like that because you're thinking, hey, you know, this is not so bad. The climate in the cave is the same all year round. Why, we could live here. I could send Tyler home. He could get food. He could bring up Kim and the rest of the kids. They can decorate me for Christmas. I'll just hang here. But in reality, I'm in this place where I'm stuck. And yet there's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward. And yet going forward requires a risk. Well, let's just push that off to the side together. And let me ask you this question. Have you ever noticed how often God puts us in that position? There's no going back. We can't stay where we are. The only place to go is to go forward. But going forward comes at a risk. To move forward, there will be a cost. See, Paul is in a similar position in Acts chapter 20. Different reasons, similar position. I was confronting risk because I had missed a moment and wanted to recover it. And by the way, I'll hold you in suspense no longer. I made it to the top and did not die. <laughs> but Paul confronted risk because he was a Christian. Paul confronted risk because of the gospel, because the gospel compelled him. For Paul, there was no going back. He couldn't stay where he was. The only place to go, to go was to go forward, but to go forward came at a great risk. And I've titled this morning's message, The Audacious Claim of the Gospel. Because one of the things we begin to realize as we walk with Christ is that this gospel that we have received also imposes a similar experience of risk and cost upon us as we follow Christ. In other words, it makes the same kind of claim upon us today as it did in the life of the Apostle Paul. And the Christian life, when you think about it, is it, it is this kind, of, this kind of mysterious suspense where we are always and ever constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. We, we, we can't go back. We can't stay where we are. The only place to go is to go forward. In other words, for the Christian, the gospel makes an audacious claim upon us. And actually, three different claims that I want to talk about this morning. And so, if we're going to answer the question, what is this audacious claim, we'll start with claim number one. Claim number one is, go forth uncertain. Go forth uncertain. Now, look at verse 22. This is how Paul experienced that. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. You, you know, this is a great summary of Paul's overall life experience as a believer. Uh, where, where God creates this compulsion, he feels constrained by the Spirit to do something, to move forward. God sets him in motion, but God withholds from him the plan of what's going to happen as he steps out in obedience. So he's going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen. He's going to Jerusalem, not knowing. He's going, not knowing. Going, not knowing. That, that should be like a banner over the Christian life. 
And that was Paul's experience for his entire Christian life. I mean, that actually, the thread of that kind of encounter with God began all the way back at Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 8, where Jesus speaks to him and says, "Um, rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. I mean, you know, you're the same way as I am. We immediately think, well, hey, if God's going to speak to me, what am I supposed to do? God says, no, rise, enter the city, get going in a direction. I'm going to give you a word. You begin going in a direction, but you'll be told what you are to do. And we're like, what am I supposed to do? Jesus says, don't worry about that. We'll get to that. Well, what? no, I want to know. He said, you, no, you can't know. Because right now it's about reorienting you about what it's like to follow the Savior. And what it's like to follow the Savior doesn't mean you get the whole program. It just means you cultivate the ability to respond to the Spirit of God when you are constrained by the Spirit so you can get going toward Jerusalem. Acts chapter 13, the Spirit speaks to the the team that's there. and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, Paul, for the work that I've called them. Well, you know, what's the work? Well, it's not defined. Well, you just need to set them apart, get them going. Well, no, I want to know what the work is. No, you don't get that right now. We'll get to that. But right now, you just need to be constrained by the Spirit and going in the direction that I've called you, not knowing what will happen. Acts chapter 16, the Macedonian call. Spirit of God says, come over to Macedonia and help us. Great. Macedonia's a big place. Where do you want me to land? What do you want me to do? And, and then the Spirit of God says, no, you don't get it. You are, you're just supposed to be set in motion. That, that you don't get the whole program. Because what you're doing, this is an exercise of you learning how to trust in God. And so this constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what would happen, became a prescription for Paul's life and experience with God. And if you're like me, it, it, it raises this question, like, why would God do that? Why does he do that with Paul? And why does he do that with us as well? And, 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 and there's a sense where this uncertainty that we live with, the very uncertainty that the Spirit of God is bringing to your mind right now as he's attaching these words to your situation, that uncertainty serves some kind of, of plan in God's purpose for your life and for the cultivation of your faith. In fact, that, that risk that you're thinking about actually creates a daily reminder for you of your dependence upon God. Not knowing the future creates something within you that you would never have. I would be so arrogant if I knew the future was always moving towards the future that I, I knew that I was supposed to walk in. I don't know the future, and so I'm dependent upon the Savior. It's the same way with you. It's a daily reminder that we're not God. See, the existence of risk reminds us of how much greater God is than we are because God doesn't take risks, nor does he need to be a risk taker. God is neither going, because he's already there, nor is he not knowing because he, he knows all things. The presence of this category of risk reminds us of our humanity. It reminds us that we're, we're not divine, we're human. We're not omniscient, we're limited. We don't, we, we don't have the plan, we live in ignorance. See, we, we confront risk because we just don't know the future. 
there's a reason for that. Because only God knows the future. We confront risk because we can't control all things. Only God can control all things. We want to control all things. I mean, that kind of, you know, when we were in, we, we lived for almost 30 years in Philadelphia. When we lived in Philadelphia, and there was even the threat of a snowstorm. I'm not talking about like an actual snowstorm. I'm just talking about a forecast, a threat. People would immediately rush to the supermarket, and they would buy everything in the supermarket, but particularly, the, I don't know what it is, like the milk and the bread, the milk and the bread. And they're like walking up and down the aisle, almost like, like machines, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread. What, you know, how can I get the milk and bread? Because the snow's coming, and when the snow comes, I want like a sandwich and a glass of milk. So I got to <laughs> have the milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread. We crave this kind of risk-free existence. We think we can control it by, you know, the things that we do. And, and yet there's a sense where risk reasserts a daily problem that is ultimately first at the heart of the gospel. See, at the heart of the gospel is this bad news that, that precedes the good news. And the, the bad news is that we're not strong. We are not in control, that we are weak. We are dependent, we are fallen, we fail, we must trust Jesus and all he has accomplished in order to serve him and to serve the future that he has moved us in. So, so the gospel comes to us and it speaks to these things in us that prevent us from taking risk. It speaks to the identity issues that, that kind of withhold us wanting to step out. Because of the gospel, we can step out into uncertainty, and we can even fail knowing that the failure is not going to name us because we have something greater declared over us in Jesus Christ, that we are not guilty as a result of Jesus living the perfect life and dying a substitutionary death. So we don't need to live for the approval of men and women because we possess the only approval that really matters. So God's constantly putting us in a position where that's being reaffirmed in our mind, where that's being reasserted in our life. This sense of the, the first claim where we, we go forth uncertain. And, and what we have to kind of wrap our brain around is that God delights in putting us in this position of going, not knowing. Because it presses us to trust him. God is brilliant, and he gets this, and he understands this. And, and, and he knows that the reality is that risk allows us to experience dependence upon him and, and to depend upon him and to need him and to experience him in new ways. And it's always been like this. You know, from the very beginning, God, God says to Abram, like Genesis, all the way back in Genesis 12, um, Abram, can I have your attention? Yes, Lord. Okay, here's the plan. Uh, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Really, Lord? Yeah, and go to the land I will show you. To the land, you know, just go. Where? To the land. What land? I'll show you. You know, I mean, typically we're like, hey, Lord, I wasn't born yesterday. You show me the land, and then I'll tell you if I want to go. I wasn't, you know... I've been around for a while. It's you, you know, you show your hand, Lord, and I'll decide if I want to go. But God says, no, you don't get it because I want you dependent upon me. 
I, I guarantee you Abram's experience with God was far different the morning he walked out of there, just kind of moving on, not knowing where he was going. And I get, you know, we, we, we think about this. We think, you know, this is crazy. It's so counterintuitive. It, Dave, this is absurd. It's irrational. It's, it's audacious. That's my point. The gospel makes an audacious claim upon us. And the first claim is go forth. Uncertain. Here's claim number two. Prepare for difficulty. Prepare for difficulty. So verse 23 adds this additional twist to the audacious claim. Verse 22, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So there's the sense where Paul's saying, well, I, I'm actually not completely ignorant. Um, I, God did drop this one little piece of knowledge on me that prison and afflictions <laughs> await me. I mean, if you're Paul, don't you want to make like an arrangement with God? Hey, can we do this one of two ways? You either show me the whole picture or you tell me nothing. But if you're going to tell me something, does it really need to be that prison and afflictions await me? You know, that, that sense of, of, of living life and moving ahead where you know there's danger, you know there's some kind of injury up ahead, you, you, you have a sense for the ending, you just don't know how it's going to happen. It, it, you reminded me of like the old Star Trek episodes, whether it was like Captain Kirk or, or Captain Picard or Cisco or Archer or whoever, whatever Star Trek, and this probably dates me, but, but, but the reason it came to mind is because they had this transporter room where they'd always be transported like down to the surface of a planet. And in every episode, they would go down to the transporter room and there would be, you know, like one of the main crew members, main crew member, main crew member on the transporter and then a fourth person to be like, I mean, you knew they were alien bait. <laughs> I mean, you knew they were going down to the surface for no other reason but to die. And, and you're like saying, no, no, stay off of the transporter because, you know, each episode, these other folks are always coming back but the per person that nobody knows, they never come back. Nobody knows you. Get off the transporter. Don't go near that. Because you have a sense for the ending. You just don't know how it's going to happen. See, Paul, th this is what Paul knew. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what awaits me. But I do know that prison and afflictions will be part of it. I do know that there is a cost. I do know that it is unsafe. This is really hard. This is hard. I mean, this is hard for, for us as parents. The, the average parent is not training their kids to take risks, to think about life and reality this way. We, we train our kids to be safe, to think about safety, to you know, orient them to that. We, you know, and, you know we've, we've extended it way beyond that. We take a legitimate desire to make kids physically safe, and we want them to be emotionally safe at all times and to, you know, and to not have to be offended or be challenged or have the beliefs challenged or to be emotionally uncomfortable in any situation. And, and we're like that as adults, too. And Jesus kind of crawls into our, 
our personal space all the time. It just starts to, to detonate things. It starts to blow relationships up and, and, and do things that create a dependence upon him in ways that we, we just never expected that make us uncomfortable because there seems to be this fundamental human drive that we have for comfort. I mean, I got it. I know. I, 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 I want to live a life that's like hassle-free. I want to rule like God over my, my own life, which means I want to I eliminate risk. I want to obliterate cost. I want to keep difficulties away because difficulty and discomfort, I mean, they go together, don't they? If, if, if something doesn't assault our comfort, it's not really a difficulty. I mean, what's the big deal if Paul's saying in verse 23, I only know that hotels and hot tubs await me. It doesn't, have, doesn't land in the same way, does it? <laughs> Difficulty by design kind of strips us down. It, it violates our comfort, which is exactly what God intends because it keeps us rooted in what really matters. And I was thinking this past week just how, how this theme, it resonates so deeply for, for both Kim and I right now. I, I, I spent 27 years as a pastor in, in one church. And through circumstances I could have never predicted nor avoided, we found ourselves on the outside of what we had spent our adult life building and participating in. And, and you know, we, we live the same way you do. You know, you have a certain vision for, for what life is going to look like. You can relate to that. You know, we're all kind of living with a vision of the future. We're all kind of working towards, oh, this is what it's going to be like in my 20s. This is what it's going to be like in my 30s or my 40s or my 50s. And, and, and this, this picture that we paint, and, and uh, you know, we had that as well. And it was all all kind of detonated. And, and, and a big reset came in life. And so my 50s, which is what I'm in now, became the riskiest, riskiest decade of, of my entire life, the most uncomfortable, living a life where, you know, we feel entirely dislocated at times and, and displaced. And, you know, one of the part of the reason why we're so grateful to God for for, for, for our attachment to, to Great Commission Collective is because we begin, we're beginning to find a, a, a family. And yet in this, I'm, I'm just realizing that it's God saying to me, Dave, life is about going to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits us. Why? Because the gospel makes an audacious claim. It makes an audacious claim in your life and in my life, and none of us are exempt. And, and I can sense right now that God, that the Spirit of God is at work just interpreting some of your experiences, some things that you're walking in right now. There's a reinterpretation going on where you were thinking this is all about punishment. God says, oh, no, 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 this is a retooling. This is about getting you thinking about trusting me in a new way. And we have to, we have to recognize that, that God wants to move us along into a place where we depend upon him. And so if you're if, if you can identify with this, 
hear God's solution. Accept that, that your life is, is often going to be going to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits you. Because nothing attacks the idols of comfort quicker than being led into an uncomfortable risk. And some of you are there right now. I mean, you feel constrained by the Spirit. You, you've sought counsel. You've sought God. And, you, you, you know, you just got to be moving forward. And, and, and others of us, we, we may need to be there right now. We're too comfortable. I mean, last time we took a risk, nobody even knew who the Kardashians were. It's been that long. You're underchallenged. Terminally bored. Here's God's prescription. Get going to Jerusalem, even though you won't know what's going to happen. And I don't know what that that means for you. Maybe it means being, being reconciled to someone who you're estranged from. And man, taking that first step just seems so audacious. It seems so risky. Maybe it means planting a church. Maybe it means starting family devotion. See, that's, the question is, what is your Jerusalem? What is that place that God is calling you to go where you have to go in motion and yet you don't know what's going to happen? Because there is a God who loves you and he loves you too much to allow you, to allow us to squander our lives in the gray twilight of ambivalence. And so he says, prepare for difficulties. And then there's a final claim, claim number three. And that is value the gospel above all. Value the gospel above all. Paul says in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So it's kind of like Paul is has slapped on this accountant's hat, and he's assigning value to things, and he comes to his life. And this is where we see, like, the true audacity of the claims of the gospel. Because Paul says, I value the gospel above my very life. And we read this, we think, can he really be saying what it appears like he's saying, that fulfilling the call of the gospel is more valuable than even his life? I mean, this is the apostle Paul talking. This is the guy that in all of history has the only justifiable exemption to be like sitting on the sidelines and not putting himself in harm's way because he's so valuable to the kingdom of God. And Paul says, oh no, that's not me at all. I value the gospel above my own life. He says, I value the gospel above my relationships. And that doesn't mean that Paul minimized relationships. I mean, Inherent to Paul's definition of success seem to be relationships and community and people that he was, as I said earlier, Paul was never simply executing a job description. You know, he, he arrives in Miletus, first thing he does is he sends for the elders. He says, man, I got my buddies, they're right up the road, come see me, let's hang out. Verse 18, he talks about how he lived with them, how he served them with tears. Deeper in Acts chapter 20, we didn't read this, but he talks about how 
you know, at the, at the very end, they're kneeling on the beach and they're praying and they're weeping because they're going to be separated from each other. In fact, let, let me just read this from verse 29. I didn't read this earlier, but in verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things. So, you know, Paul's saying, hey, guys, just want you to know, after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in. From among you, other people are going to rise. It's going to be a mess. Peace out. I'm gone. See, Paul knew that leaving would be hard. He knew that even the people would be at risk, but he left. And there's a sense where that didn't diminish the significance of relationship for him. It just put the gospel and the call of the gospel and the call of the mission just beyond that because if we weren't willing to step away from the wonderful relational grid that we have, no mission would ever take place. No churches would ever be planted. This church would not exist. I brought a great quote this morning uh, by John Piper. Listen to this. This is so convicting. First time I read it. He said, no local church can afford to go without the encouragement and the nourishment that will come to it by sending away its best people. And you know one of the things I love about that quote is that this church has done that in different times and different ways. And you've experienced the blessing of that and the pain of that. You have valued the gospel above relationships. There's one other point I want to make about how Paul approached this. Because it wasn't just that he valued the gospel above his life or that he valued the gospel above relationships. But he valued the gospel above the fruit of the gospel. And stay with me for a second, because I realize this is a strange one. But there is a sense where we, we all long for fruit, don't we? Uh, you know, we, we evangelize. We, we, we use our gifts. We're in relationships. We, we try to parent in ways that we're going to see fruit. And sometimes we define, we have this expectation of how the fruit is supposed to come and when the fruit is supposed to arrive. But here, here's the thing. Paul didn't live life holding God hostage for a fruit that was supposed to come at a certain time because he was obedient in this season. It wasn't this transaction Paul had with God where God really, this is about if I do this, you do this. And in fact, you will deliver this in my timetable and in the way that I expect because I obeyed you. No, for Paul, it was about, he, he says it, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. He just wanted to be, to use his words, faithful to testify to the gospel. So for Paul, it was about being faithful in each season, not in experiencing the fruit of his faithfulness in each season. In fact, for Paul, he recognized that there were some things that were so worthy there were some things that were so glorious that mere obedience was enough, that it was glorious to just be a part of, of moving toward God, not knowing, of, of living in, in the mystery, living in the ambiguity, and being able to trust God even though you don't understand what he's doing, 
and don't understand the plan. And just have a sense that, you know what, when it comes to the gospel, and specifically in mission, when it comes to the gospel going forward, it's glorious to just be a part of it. Years ago, I was part of a group that, that planted a church in an area named, called Chester, Pennsylvania. Chester is in the southern part of Philadelphia. And this church was planted by this heroic couple, this, this heroic family, that, that made these great sacrifices to plant this church in, in a very impoverished area. Um, and, and many risks were taken and great costs were absorbed as this church, you know, kind of got up and going and, 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 and existed for a few years. But as time continued, the, the guy that had planted the church and became the senior pastor the folks around him and also the other folks that were involved kind of became persuaded that the Lord really wanted to draw the church to a close. And this was really difficult, uh, you know, because there were so many hopes that had been placed in this church plant, so many sacrifices that had been made to see this church plant take place. And, And on the final Sunday of the final meeting that this church had, Cornerstone Church of Chester, they, they had their final meeting and they had a banquet together. And at this banquet, they just sat and they just reviewed and testified and celebrated God's goodness to them in the four and a half years that this church existed. And as that banquet drew to a close and the, and the history of that church came to an end. One, one brother who was sing, sta- sitting off in the corner just stood up and began to sing this, this song, the song, Haven't You Been Good? Thank, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for drawing me out of millions lost. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Haven't you been good? And as his voice echoed off the wall, there was a kind of holy hush that, that settled upon the room. And from different corners, and the children got up and they kind of came into the middle and they began to, to dance around. And the Spirit of God stirred among the people that were there. And the people began to earnestly join their voices in the song, agreeing and truly believing the substance of what they were singing. And as the senior pastor, a, a guy named Ari Mangrum, as the senior pastor was sitting there, he just began to think, you know, there are some goals that are so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. That the gospel is so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. And so we are called to plant churches. And so we are called to reach our community and create a community and build local churches and build families and and risk an invitation to our neighbor, not with the expectation and not with the demand that everything we do is going to bear the kind of fruit that we expect, but with a sense that it's, it's glorious to even make the attempt. I, I, I wish I could say to you, that I believe that the day of cost and risk are over. But honestly, my sense is it's just beginning. And so, constrained by the Spirit, 
we are going to Jerusalem not knowing what awaits us. Let's pray. Lord, I want to ask for each person here that has been experiencing and encountering you in some application during this message that you would grant them the courage and the clarity to take the risk that you are constraining them toward. Lord, that you would allow them to experience a faith and a peace. And Lord, that the result of it may not be the immediate fruit that they expected, but that they would experience the pleasure of God because they have obeyed God. And we pray this in Jesus' name.